the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back with our conversation, Scott Cleland, my guest. Search and destroy why you can't trust Google, Inc. And uh, this new book uh, dealing with the topic of uh, Google and its long reach that seems to go well beyond uh, anything we could have even dreamt of um, when 1984 was written back in 1948. Um, Scott, you mentioned that beyond simply tracking our online activities, our churches, our, pay, our, our searches, our page hits, etc., etc., you said that they're also tracking so much more. Elaborate on that, if you would. Well, Big Brother in 1984 just listened and watched. And, um, you know, the, the advent of search really is, John Patel said, it's a database of intentions. Basically, you can t- tell what somebody wants and seeks and where they, what they're really um, thinking that's important in their life is, is um, revealed through search and through some of the other products. You know, where you go on the web and, you know, where you spend your time relatively and, and all that. And so... Um, uh, they they know everything about you. As I as I said that you know they they they're tracking everything you do, so they know you better than yourself. And um, why is that a problem? And well, that's a problem because all of that Uber profile, that incredibly intimate uh, personal information. And, and I should step back here and say. As we know, there's not a listener out there. We know there's no one on this on this earth that is without sin, that is without something that they would rather that not be seen. And it can be the most minor thing that you're afraid of, you know, a neighbor finding out about something or a family member knowing about something, and you're not worried about anybody else. But everybody has a right to privacy, and everybody um, uh, needs privacy for security. So publicly you tell all your friends that you're a big fan of Fox News, and secretly at home you're watching MSNBC on the Internet. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's, and, and there's a ton of legitimate reasons why we want privacy. And so what is um, scary about Google is they just don't believe in privacy. But the thing I want to tell, you, I tell your listeners right now is, is that Google has this incredible profile that J. Edgar Hoover or any, the East German Stasi would have dreamed of having during the, uh, during the Cold War, or even any totalitarian, totalitarian government today would dream having that profile on, uh, on citizens because they could then use it to influence them and control them. They, but that information that Google has could fall into the wrong hands in four different ways, and it's happened in all four. The first is it can fall into the hands of a rogue Google employee. And we already have an, an example of a uh, Google engineer stalking teenagers using the, the, the Google database. It could fall into the hands of a hacker. We know last year that the Chinese completely hacked the entire Google system and stole Google's entire password system. We know from last year um, uh, that uh, that 
that could fall in the hands of, of a spy agency. We know from the Washington Post front page that um, uh, that Google cooperates with the National Security Agency. We know um, that uh, because Google has warned us that uh, law enforcement can get all this information without a subpoena because our laws have not kept up with the due process where, you know, in order to have your phone tapped, they have to go to a judge and get permission. They don't need that in order to get all the stuff from, from Google. Now, that can fall into the wrong hands, and that creates an increased danger for everybody. Well, just ask Sony how problematic this can be. Absolutely. Well, just think about it. This Uber profile, could, you know, it creates an danger, increased danger of stalking, blackmail, theft, fraud, kidnapping, intimidation, harassment, or arrest. Now, in a free society, we don't want to have you know, um, you know citizens have a, a Orwellian Big Brother Inc. profile out there. It's not what a free country is about. You also made the comment, uh, Scott, that Google is wanting or is, or is attempting to or maybe has, has succeeded in some cases of capturing voice prints and facial images, all of this, too. So if you're uh, uh, camming or you're doing Skype, I guess, or whatever, uh, they have the capability to capture all of that? Yes. Uh, you have, your voice is uh, like a fingerprint. It is um, unique to you. And uh, they collected um, a bunch of them without anybody's permission. When they offered 411, you know, that free uh, 411 oh, sure. phone service, that reason they were doing that, there were two reasons. They were, I believe they were connecting, collecting voice prints, but they were also collecting phenomes, uh, phonemes. They were trying to get the sounds so that they could improve their translation. So you have to realize that Google's always using users of lab rats, measuring them and testing them. And they, that's, they just view um, people as data and data to collect in order to improve their systems and improve their our artificial intelligence. And then they also have face prints. You know, Picasso, they rearrange, they arrange your photos, but most everybody knows that you can identify people through facial recognition software. But it doesn't stop there. We know Google is investing in fingerprint technology. They would love to get into that as well. And we know they've invested in DNA marking technology, thinking into the future. If you really want to get uh, um, you know, a sense of all the things that Google can collect, I did a one-pager that people could find on the web called uh, Total Information Awareness Power. And if you bing it, you can, you can find it. But there in one page I list all of the things that uh, Google collects. And in my book as well, it lists many of the things that the Google collects, and it's just mind-boggling all the ways they can identify you. Now, uh, is there a URL for that, or should I just Google it to find it? Well, Bing, if you went to, um, uh, um, if you Bing Total Information Awareness Power, that's my one pager. It'll probably come to my blog post, and you'll see there's a PDF there. Not surprisingly, but, uh, you're not recommending that we Google it. You Bing it. <laughs> uh, I wonder why I recommend it. I wonder why. I, when we come back, I want to talk a bit, too, about some of the things that we can do to circumvent uh, being a victim of this level. Level of intrusiveness. You know, it, it's one thing again for a company to gather <coughs> data so that they can more accurately, you know, target their advertising things of this sort. Okay, I, I get all of that. Uh, you know, demographics are very important in the ad game, as they say. But but the degree to which this can be used, and then you talk about surreptitious level in which you know, with a government that is trustworthy and wholesome and would never do anything wrong toward its citizenry, this can be a uh, uh, something that we would just never worry about about. 
I don't know that a government of that sort has yet been invented. Let's take a time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Scott Cleland, a look at search and destroy why you can't trust Google Inc. Uh, from a practical standpoint, what does what does Google plan, in your opinion, Scott, to do with all of this information that they are gathering? I mean, you, you've outlined what can happen if it falls into the hands of rogue employees or it's readily hacked that could bring, you know, serious consequences, much as the folks at uh, Sony have been dealing with with the PlayStation hack of, you know, going on three weeks now. But what about from the standpoint of google themselves how are they profiting potentially or do they plan to profit from gathering all this data well we have to explore two different avenues um one is kind of the business and the other is uh, the political uh from uh, a business you have to realize they are the only uh, fortune 1000 company with a uh, a political mission. You know, it's not their mission isn't to serve um, uh, customers or to help share owners or service share owners. It's to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. So they say they want to change the world, and so um, and they also are not interested in monetizing things. They just want to solve the world's problems. So I call them Tectopians, and uh, um, you know, as a uh, um, you really have to understand what they're all about. And, uh, you know, people wonder why am I so uh, alarmed by Google is, is I think they have lousy values. And I, I completely disagree with their values. The two main values they have is they don't believe in privacy. They believe in radical transparency. Um, they, you know, and what you see with the, with the um, radical transparency is that, that's what, the, um, what uh, they're trying to do in organizing all the world's information. It includes uh, um, all your private information. Now, the second half of that is, is that um, they don't believe in property rights. They believe in redistributing everybody else's information property for free without their permission, and they're the ones that monetize it and other people um, don't. And so um, when you put those two values together, and they're political values, where they believe in radical transparency over privacy, and they believe in um, redistributing other people's property without permission over um, a free market and property rights. When you get that, in the end, if you don't have privacy and property online, you are Google's surf. That is a you know that's my my big political beef with with Google is uh, I I don't think most Americans and most people around the world um, want to give up all their privacy and give up all their property rights. No, I would dare say not. Now, with all this said, as much as Google has become a, a daily habit for so many people around the world, uh, how do we respond? How do we fight back to all of this? Well, um, this is something where you know my my solution in the book is relatively straightforward and simple. That doesn't mean it'll be easy. Um, basically, if Google was as accountable and as transparent as they expect everybody else to be, and if they just simply respected uh, people, property, and, and the rule of law, I don't think uh, anybody would have major problems with them. Basically, Google is a notorious scoff law. They're a serial offender of, of privacy, property, and, uh, and, and the rule of law. And uh, as you probably have heard, their don't be evil um, you know, credo. 
uh, it, it's a joke. It's the lowest ethical standard ever devised. It basically allows anything short of evil. And what, um, what, um, when you look at uh, how Google behaves, and you compare it to the Judeo-Christian ethic and of, of the golden rule, um, they regularly treat people the way they would never want to be treated. They treat people like, you know, data and like lab rats that are to be tested and tracked and, and, and manipulated. And so, um, you know, a big, big problem with Google and trying to hit back is the fact that they're so unethical. But now getting back to what can be done about it, um, people need to be aware that Google is, uh, um, you know, they've learned all the benefits, and there are tremendous benefits. I am not, uh, you know, against Google or think Google is evil. I think they're unethical and untrustworthy, and that people need to understand that there are great costs that go along with with the benefits. But basically, it's a law enforcement problem. Unfortunately, uh, um, uh, three on three continents, they're being investigated for antitrust. I believe their monopoly power will be reined in. Um, many countries are are, are trying to rein them in on privacy. And I think in the U.S. we're going to pass both do not track legislation and comprehensive privacy legislation. And that's probably the, what the most important thing to your listeners is that do not track legislation gets passed relatively quickly. In the meanwhile, we do have alternatives out there. I'm thinking of browsers like Firefox. Well, interesting, careful, Firefox, um, uh, 90% of the money that Firefox gets came from Google. Huh, huh. Yeah, you didn't know that. They're basically the whole um, uh, Mozilla Foundation is funded through. Now, to be fair to Mozilla, Mozilla and Firefox have been much better than Google about uh, um, do not track and about privacy concerns. So Firefox has been a good browser, certainly better than Chrome. But people should remember that uh, Chrome or that uh, I'm sorry, that Firefox has long been backed by Google. And so um, there is a question mark there. All right, you mentioned Bing earlier. Bing, of course, nothing to do with the Cherry or Crosby, is associated with Microsoft. And a lot of yes. people look at Microsoft as another pretty huge big brother. Well, um, you know, Microsoft has a different model. And, uh, you know, Microsoft and Apple, where Google maligns them and, and other people look at them now and, and are worried, um, users have to remember that users and customers actually pay these companies like Apple and Microsoft um, they get paid directly by the people they serve and that is completely different than um, than Google Google claims to work for users but it doesn't it makes all of its 30 billion monopoly money in uh, you know from advertisers and my one of my largest beefs with um, with Google is not that they advertise advertising's um, a perfectly legitimate uh, business that's how um, your radio station uh, um, makes a living but problem with Google is they're not forthright, they are not honest, they do fairly represent what they do. They represent that they're only interested in users when they work for, they have a conflict of interest and they work for um, for advertisers. And so um, a lot of what needs to be done with Google is just making sure they forthrightly represent themselves to the public so that people know that, you know, they can't trust them like they thought they could try trust them. Wow. And in terms of the reining in, as you say, that may be done by legislation in the end, how complete, how effective do you think that will be, or do we really have to really protect it and watch it ourselves? 
Well, I definitely think we need to watch it and protect ourselves. And, I, and I'm, I'm an optimist in the sense that I think, you know, the democratic system, a free market system with, uh, um, uh, with law enforcement and with a vigilant populace, that most of the Google problem can be addressed. But people should realize it's going to take a long time. And, um, uh, and Google is a serial scofflaw. They are very clever about how they um, they pat people on the head and say, oh, we care about privacy, we care about security, we care about property, move along, there's nothing to see here. And then they go on and do what they were going to do before. And so the law enforcement challenge going forward is going to require extremely vigilant, repeat, repeat, repeat law enforcement from um, from the government on, on, on all fronts. Because, uh, you know, Google as a culture, has a scofflaw culture, they think they're right. They think they're values are right. To give your listeners an example of their political values in that action is when WikiLeaks, Julian Assange released all those um, uh, top secret cables and confidential information and and, uh, information on confidential informants for law enforcement and for our intelligence services, they put tremendous lives at risk and the national security at risk tremendously. Now, publications like the Post or New York Times or whatever, they um, uh, were careful about what they released. Some people may quibble they released too much, but they redacted a lot of information and they didn't release actual documents. Now, um, uh, when uh, companies uh, decided they didn't want to be associated, like eBay, Amazon, Yahoo, they decided to put um, a a, a 10-foot pole between them and Julian Assange. They didn't want to be associated with that guy at all. He's a criminal and uh, a despicable criminal. And uh, but look what Google did. Google um, uh, basically, their senior management got together, according to um, Schmidt, and they decided they were going to make all those cables and index them so they'd be universally accessible to the world, to all the world's bad actors. So that top secret information, that, those confidential informants, that private information on citizens is now indexable by al-Qaeda, by terrorists, by hackers, by creeps. It is an unbelievably irresponsible thing that Google has done. But that's because their technology, or their philosophy, political philosophy, is for radical transparency over privacy and redistributing whatever property they find to everybody. That's their techtopian ideal, and I think it should very much scare and trouble people. Information on the web, bing it. Total Information Awareness Power, Total Information Awareness Power, the book called Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google Inc., available through Amazon.com or um, also information through Scott's website, Scott Cleland, C-L-E-L-A-N-D, Cleland.com. Scott, thanks for the time and the education. Wow. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, there have been statistics, and these are statistics I think that we all well, sadly, know too well of what's happened with the divorce rate in America. Perhaps another alarming point to just how much pressure marriage is under in our nation today is the fact that growing numbers of couples aren't even bothering. By that I mean many are deciding since more than half of marriages in America today wind up in divorce court, why even bother? Just reside together. It'll make things less complicated when we decide that we're no longer fit for each other. But is that really God's design for marriage? And if your marriage is on the rocks, right? 
right now, and you and or your spouse have basically decided we've gone as far as we can go. Let's just pull the bandage off all in one fell swoop and get it over with. Does that mean that your marriage is necessarily hopeless and destined to become just yet another statistic? My guest today on the program, I think, would suggest absolutely not. That perhaps, much like when you need a major overhaul of your engine on the car or you need to go into the doctor and have surgery, there needs to be a radical approach, an intensive approach to getting your marriage off the rocks and back on track again. Joining me on the program, Dr. Jared Pingleton. He's Director of Counseling with Focus on the Family. And Dr. Pingleton, great to have you on the program. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Craig. My pleasure. We talk about marriage, and there's been an exciting marriage, so to speak, between um, the Ministry of Focus on the Family and another organization that you have deep ties to that really has been at the forefront of saying to couples, look, you don't have to become another statistic that as bad as it might be, as challenging as your relationship may be, there is no such thing as no hope at all. That's absolutely correct. Let's talk a bit about where we're at with statistics in America today. We talk about, on average, uh, one out of every, every two marriages ends in divorce. Are we simply taking the easy way out? Is that what this is about? Well, I'm, I'm not really sure, Craig. I know that we live in a culture that is very transitory, and, you know, we, we, we live in a throwaway society. You know, uh, we, we just don't have a good sense of what covenant is about, and we get very little, uh, I think, effective preaching and teaching as to what a covenant actually is. And so we have been now for about three generations into a culture that has the no-fault concept of, of divorce, and so... Yeah, if we're incompatible, you know, let's just uh, call it quits. And, you know, this throwaway society in which we live has unfortunately extended that to the realm of relationships. And that is absolutely antagonistic to everything that the Bible teaches. And we feel passionately about being able to understand how God is a redeemer, and not just in our heart, but in our relationships, and especially marriage here at Focus on the Family. You suggest that this is multi-generational, and you're, you're absolutely accurate on that point. And I wonder if part of the problem here is that we have multiple generations now that have never perhaps for themselves ever witnessed or experienced what a healthy, functioning marriage looks like. I mean, if, if one out of every two marriages ends in divorce, that means there's a good chance of every couple that gets together tomorrow, say, or are going to be at the altar next week, uh, likely one, if not both of them, come from a family that wound up in divorce. So maybe part of the problem is we're, we're just modeling the behavior that we've experienced because we know nothing different. We, we don't know what a healthy marriage looks like. Do you think maybe that's part of the problem, too? I, I absolutely do, Craig. I think that's absolutely correct. I uh, just wrote a book called Making Magnificent Marriages, and I, I have a whole chapter to your point of this whole difficulty that we have had of not having good examples lived out in front of us. And so we have this incredible cohabitation right now among millennials in our culture. They have seen very poor marriages modeled in front of them, and so their whole idea of try before you buy to them makes sense, but the problem with that is there's no there's no foundation of trust. It's it's building the proverbial marital house on sand. And without commitment, without covenant, it's impossible for a relationship to endure. And and that's why I think we need to help people understand what a healthy marriage looks like. Um, so and and the irony is, you know, that about forty percent of first marriages end in divorce. The irony is this for people who cohabit 
their breakup rate is 80%. Wow. So it's like, well, I don't want to have a failed relationship, so I'm going to double my odds of that actually <laughs> happening. And that's the incredible irony and deception that I think our culture is living under these days because uh, the vast majority of 20-somethings are either delaying marriage into their 30s or not marrying at all. They're just cohabitating. Well, you use the term covenant, and I think it's a very important one because it's a biblical one, and it is one that we have strayed from quite significantly over a number of generations, as you point out. And let's face it, if we go into a marriage or into a relationship with the idea that we're going to cohabitate to kind of take it for a test drive, both of the partners going into that relationship know deep down that at any day, the other partner could come into the door and say, you know what, I'm done. Packing my bags and I'm leaving. There's no hope. There's no sense of commitment. There's nothing there that, that is a glue to hold us together. And so no wonder when we go in with, number one, the, the baggage we have of our own brokenness from being products of broken relationships. There's such a level of distrust that we, we build that relationship then not on a foundation of trust and confidence and covenant, as you suggest, but rather it's built at the very get-go by making a silent statement. I don't trust you. Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly what a cohabitating mindset says is, hi, I love you, but I don't trust you. Will you live with me? (laughs) And do so happily ever after. (laughs) There's no basis for security. There's no basis for any sense of being able to relax. The, The whole point of sex without commitment is antagonistic to the fundamental maxim of God's universe, that without exclusivity and permanence and unconditionality, there's nothing to create security, stability, and strength in a relationship. And so there's all kinds of things then that enter into the relationship. Performance pressure, comparisons with others, and an ongoing continuous threat of fear. And, um, you know, if they find somebody else, why shouldn't they just jump out and hop into relationship with that other person? So it's uh, it, it has a whole bunch of fear and anxiety that's just built in. So I, I just don't recommend it at all. And we wind up settling for less than the ideal. We wind up yes. settling for a marriage that exists but does not thrive. And as I think you might suggest from your background um, prior to coming on board with uh, Focus on the Family as Director of Counseling there, Dr. Pingleton was involved with the National Institute for Marriage. Would you suggest that marriages should not simply settle for getting along or second best, but in fact, under the right circumstances and, and ultimately with the right modeling and coaching, that marriages can not only survive but thrive? Is that possible? That That is absolutely correct, Craig. I, I believe that God's design for marriage is a redemptive process. Now, that's theological code word for saying that God delights in transforming blessing out of our brokenness. And the only way we can have that transformation take place is to get in touch with our brokenness. And so what marriage does, ironically, is it pulls the very worst out of us um, just by by means of osmosis, as it were. Uh, We get to reap everything that everybody else in our spouse's world sows into their heart before we showed up. (laughs) Hip, hip, hooray. But, you know, marriage is the hardest thing I think there is to do well. And the research bears that out, too. And not just the divorce rates, but the marriage satisfaction rates suggest that about 5 to 12% of American marriages are mutually fulfilling. Wow, just 5%. 
that, yeah, five to twelve percent, and ninety percent of that five to twelve percent have been after thirty years or more. Mm. So marriage is hard, and yet I think it is God's plan to redeem us. Well, don't you think too that if we if we set our sights so low, uh, we have no sense of expectation coming in. We're we're not willing to do the hard work. Uh, we right. come into the marriage relationship, admittedly or otherwise, broken. Even if we even if we came from a whole home where mom and dad were together the entire time, there, there's still the influence of the outside world and and man's innate sin nature that brings a sense of brokenness in. Of the marriage relationship, and then we set yes. no expectations at any level for excellence at all. Uh, I guess when we go into marriage like that, anticipating disappointment, we shouldn't be surprised when we get it. That's true. That's true. And yet we have all these other romanticized, idealistic expectations that come from Hollywood and Hallmark that we should live happily ever after. And that's just a that's a romantic myth. That's a fairy tale. That's not reality. So I guess the question is, and I'm going to ask you to stay with us for one more segment because we need to dive deeper into this. The question then becomes, look, if we know and recognize that God has established the marriage covenant, the marriage relationship, certainly God has, as we see throughout Scripture, high expectations for what that is. God has not designed this, as some folks might think, just to bring two people together to torture each other, but in fact to, to grow with one another and as they do so grow closer to each other, closer to God and to work through all of the baggage that, as we said before, we all bring into the marriage relationship. Now, how do we, how do we learn to, to sort of um, expunge or, or, or deal with the pain and disappointment and hurt in our life to find healing, not only in our own lives, but restoration? And your marriage, even as on the rocks and hopeless as it might seem today, you might be listening to this conversation and saying, Craig, I, I understand what, what you and Dr. Pinkerton are saying, but you guys just don't understand. You've never met my wife, or you don't know my husband, or you just right. don't know the agony and the challenges that we've been through. And we've we've talked to our pastor, and that doesn't seem to work, and, and we've read a couple of books. We maybe even went into a couple of counseling sessions, but you don't understand it is hopeless is it really or are you simply saying that you've given up on god that your marriage is beyond god's ability to restore it really do you really believe that if you do it's okay to admit that but I want you to stay right where you're at, because when we come back, we're going to dive deeper into, as we've acknowledged what the problem is, where's the hope in all of this? Dr. Jared Pinkleton is with us today. He's the Director of Counseling with Focus on the Family. We're talking about an interesting marriage, a partnership, really, between our friends at Focus on the Family and the National Institute of Marriage that has had a remarkable track record in bringing hope and healing and restoration to marriages, maybe even yours. Stay with us. We'll get back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. We continue our visit today. Dr. Jared Pingleton is with us today. He is Director of Counseling with Focus on the Family. We've been talking about the state of marriage in America today, and, and, and perhaps you are one of those statistics that we talked about earlier. Maybe you're at the point where you feel as if you've tried everything that you can. Your marriage is just simply 
hopeless. That, of course, uh, Dr. Pingleton runs um, contrarian to God's ideal for marriage. And God certainly hasn't given up on this. This is a matter, though, of, of perhaps accurately and adequately looking at what we're, where we're at in our marriage relationship and, and what God wants to do to bring about healing and restoration both in our lives individually and then together as a couple. Absolutely. God's design and plan for marriage is something that our culture has sort of adopted to feel like, well, they're not making me happy anymore, and so I need to find someone else. And that's just totally contrary to God's plan. That is, He wants us to to grow and to heal and to restore and redeem one another. But what marriage does is exposes the depths of our selfishness. It exposes the, um, the, the irony that, you know, we're hoping our love will cure the other person, and then we're disappointed when it doesn't. Uh, Craig, I'm a, as a clinical psychologist, as well as a credentialed minister, one of the ironies that I've noticed over my career for 37 years is this. Without exception, almost every couple that comes into marriage therapy does so, hoping their spouse will change. <laughs> <laughs> Always the other guy's fault, right? <laughs> exactly. And, you know, the irony is when both of us change, whether the other one does or not, then and only then can God begin to work in each person's heart and life. Well, and you know, the irony of that is you talk about a level of frustration, Doctor, because if we come into a, a challenges and, and a rough spot in marriage and we lay, entirely lay the blame on the other side uh, of the marriage relationship, and I, I can see in some circumstances, you know, somebody eavesdropping on our conversation right now might say, well, guys, you don't understand. My husband right. did this. My wife did that. And right. you may have an adequate point, but here's the challenge. You have absolutely no control over their thought process or their behavior. But I tell you what you do have control over, and that is your own. Exactly. And that empowering of the individual to take responsibility for their own marriage covenant, I think, is crucial. And it's revolutionary. When both people get that, even if just one person in the marriage gets that, the marriage system changes. Because here's what God wants for us, Craig. He wants us to realize, hey, my covenant has nothing to do with my spouse. My covenant has to do with me. And I, I elaborate this real fully in, in my book about marriage is that, you know, the, the self-respect that's generated when I keep my marriage covenant, because I promise to love my wife unconditionally on days that end in Y, as long as I'm breathing, no matter what she does or doesn't do. And even if I could manipulate or control her into keeping her marriage vow, I wouldn't recommend it because of two things. Number one, I would never know if she did that because I made her or because she wanted to. Hmm. And so number two, that would actually create more insecurity for me, not not um, not less. It, it It's like drinking salt water when thirsty, and that's what the culture kind of, you know, emphasizes for us to do, is to try to control our maid into doing what we want them to do, to well. love us and respect us. And that's not what a marriage covenant is about. It is a unilateral, unconditional commitment to dedicating myself to serve my spouse in the best ways I know how with God's help. And let's face it, if we were to analyze a failed relationship at any level, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, between between two friends or two spouses, uh, oftentimes it's this issue of the expectations we place on another. 
And then yep. they don't meet those expectations. Sometimes they don't even know that we have those expectations. And That's then right. we feel disappointed. And then our dis- disappointment turns into bitterness. And the bitterness then gets a deep root in our heart. And before you know it, we've decided, ah, oh, you're, you're worthless. This marriage is never going to work out. And it's very easy to give up on it simply right. because we went into it with, with an inappropriate expectation of the other person to begin with. That's right. We Let's talk a bit about to love us and make us happy. Exactly. Let's talk, uh, Doctor Pingleton, a bit about uh, providing hope for couples that are right sure. where we've been discussing. Now, we've all heard the stories about the couple that uh, calls the pastor and goes in for counseling. Maybe even goes into a meet with a professional counselor, and uh, for the hour that they're together, there's detente and they're able to talk civilly because there's kind of a referee in the room. And and then the minute they get back in the car and walk out the door, they're back to arguing. What is different in your experience about the approach that the National Institute of Marriage has taken? And again, I want to mention for listeners that have joined us late, there's a wonderful partnership now, a marriage really, between the Ministry of Focus on the Family and the National Institute of Marriage that has had an incredible success rate at bringing together marriages that are in really, really bad shape and putting them through an intensive session uh, that lasts more than just an hour. And at the end of the day, I understand that research has demonstrated that couples that are willing to take part in in this approach, two years after they've gone through it, are still together, still married, and in fact, back on the road toward healing. What's different about the approach taken by the National Institute of Marriage? Great question, Craig. And this is what we're so excited about in at Focus on the Family is that this approach that the National Institute of Marriage does, they're located in two locations in Branson, Missouri and Rome, Georgia. They offer an, a very creative and unique way to help couples heal that in a, less than a week, four or five days, they can get as much progress and health and healing uh, that it, than you would take on an average of one year of outpatient psychotherapy going once a week. What they do is a very concentrated and intensive version of helping people get to the root issues of what's going on in their marriage or what's not going on in their marriage that they want to. And they help each individual change, whether their spouse does or not. And the the exciting thing about it is many of those couples are hanging by a thread. They've already filed the divorce papers, you know, if, if it doesn't work, to, to be activated on Monday when they get home. And they're, this is a last resort, desperation kind of thing. But but what they do um, and have for about 10 years at the National Institute of Marriage, and, and we're so excited that now Focus on the Family is, has joined with them and they with us, is this. They ask each individual, if God were to give you a miracle in your marriage, would you be willing to accept it? Hmm. And it's so awesome to see how God shows up every single week at, at those intensives where couples deal with issues that they feel absolutely hopeless and helpless about, and yet they, they see the change that takes place in themselves and in their spouse. And the miracle stories that happen there are just awesome. They are just amazing to see how God has restored and redeemed and reconciled hurting couples. And, and this intensive time, it takes them away from the normal day-to-day environment because let's face it it's it's hard to be at the office all day long or be a stay-at-home parent all day long and then go to a counseling session and then come back and you're you're right back in the same environment and sometimes just getting away in a a change of pace and a change of environment can help to clarify your 
your thinking, deepen your understanding, and, and give yes. you kind of the space that you need. Isn't it true? Give, give them kind of Absolutely. the space that they need and, to be able to work through these issues. Yes, and, and this intensive therapeutic format enables the couple to go deep because when you're starting to get into some deep pain and, you know, 45 minutes or 50 minutes is up, you have to sort of research the wound that you've surgically incised in and opened up that, that uh, pain and, and put duct tape and bailing wire on it basically till next week. And what this opportunity affords is, yes, to get away in a beautiful resort-like setting that's free from distraction and very relaxing and peaceful, but yet that opportunity to work concentratedly, intensively, without distraction, without other responsibilities or obligations. They do about eight hours of therapy every day, and then in the evenings, there are directed um, learning exercises and interaction kinds of opportunities that each couple can participate in as well so that they can really, really focus exclusively and intensively on their marriage. And it, that investment works. Well, and you know, to put this in perspective, we bring oftentimes uh, a whole childhood, a young adult life of pain yes. and disappointment and the lack of, of appropriate uh, healthy marriage modeling if we're coming from a, an abusive home or a broken home. And then we go into a marriage relationship and, and we've got two broken people together now that are all of a sudden helping to break each other even more so, sometimes wouldn't right. we, sometimes not so. And so there's a lifetime of this hurt and disappointment and failed expectations that have accumulated. And so to say, get away for two or three days. And let's try to put a Band-Aid on that. And I like your analogy. It, it, it's a lot like having heart surgery. You need a heart transplant. Yeah. If the doctor said, gee, I've got a golf game in 45 minutes, so we'll start today, then we'll search you up, then we'll come back tomorrow and we'll, we'll continue. And it might take me a week or so, but we'll finally get through it all. Well, you, you know what kind of pain and, and condition that patient would be in. So here's an intensive opportunity to work start to finish through the issues, through the pain, through the bitterness, through the disappointment. And at the end of this experience, I understand, uh, Dr. Pinkerton, that, that better than 85% of people walk away with a pretty significant breakthrough, don't they? Well, they do. And, and what the research shows that uh, they have done over the years is that after therapy, two years later, that 85% of those couples are still together that came to their anticipating divorce. So they have the best results in terms of success rates clinically of any program or any counseling kind of uh, intervention or model or modality in the country. All right. With that sense of perspective and hope, I, I trust you've heard something in our conversation today with Dr. Jared Pingleton that has said to you, okay, we still have another option here. And I want to urge you, hop on the Internet and go to nationalmarriage.com. That's nationalmarriage.com. And just get some more information. There are these intense retreats and conferences taking place all over the country. And you can go to the website to get more information. And uh, taking that first step, Dr. Pingleton, is oftentimes the, the, the step in the right direction that can ultimately lead to hope and restoration of a marriage. Absolutely. So again, on the web at nationalmarriage.com. That's nationalmarriage.com. And we're so delighted to see this marriage, really this partnership between Focus on the Family and the Ministry of National Marriage. And here now is an opportunity for you to find hope and healing and restoration of your own marriage. Again, on the web at nationalmarriage.com. And our thanks to Dr. Jared Pingleton, Director of Counseling with Focus on the Family. And Dr. Pingleton, thanks again for the time and the insights. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me as a guest, Craig. God bless you all. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.